This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast. And in this episode, that's also part of our uh, CSN Barcelona Cognition Brain Technology Summer School, I'm talking with Donald Pfaff. And uh, Donald, you were um, giving a very elaborate talk, in some sense, uh, focusing very much on, let's say, how um, the arousal system is really very much, let's say, a core engine of of brain, mind, and behavior. So... um, why, why do you because in some sense also in the psychological literature arousal is, is often seen as sort of some sort of non-specific mm-hmm. you know an input to a steam engine and sort mm-hmm. of we don't think about it too much mm-hmm. so so why do you believe that arousal is such a core ingredient of what makes us what we are it used to be uh, thought that the word non-specific is the worst possible word in behavioral neuroscience and i've tried to turn this coin over and look on the other side and say that beneath every act, beneath every cognitive ability, beneath every emotional state, is a primitive impetus, which is essential and powerful. It's necessary for every, any motivated behavior, and it's the place to begin. It's like starting at zero. Uh, if we, instead of studying the brain, if we were getting together to study the, 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 the planet, the Earth, we would say, what's, what's in there? What's making the whole thing work? And it's the magma of the earth. It's deep, it's complicated, and mm-hmm. it's unknown. Mm-hmm. And th- those things appeal to me. It especially appeals to me because uh, it, it's been discarded, uh, this, this subject, for about 60 years. The great Italian uh, neurophysiologist Morozzi, working together with the American Horace Magoon, in the 1940s, really began to break the subject open. Uh, but then we, we, got, we lost our way, partly because we were interested in, quotes, more specific abilities, especially in the visual system, close quotes, and also because the tools of neuroscience became so detailed that we could indeed study the third dendrite from the left mm-hmm. or the second nucleotide of DNA from the right, and therefore we thought we should. And in doing so, I, I think that we lost the ground substance mm-hmm. uh, uh, of the nervous system. Right. Uh, the, sub, the substance, uh, uh, the reticular formation, which in any vertebrate nervous system, from the fish to the philosopher, uh, is necessary for all motivated behaviors. Mm-hmm. I like the universal aspect of it, and that's why I'm studying it so hard. Mm-hmm. Right. But now, in, so, so you, you started by saying that both when we talk about, let's say, emotional aspects of, of the brain or cognitive aspects, mm-hmm. it's all sort of predicated on this on the basic arousal system. It starts out with arousal. It's right. Not, so how, how, should I, how should I interpret that? Well, uh, uh, arousal is necessary but not sufficient, as we mm-hmm. were saying a few minutes ago. What's necessary, what's sufficient. <clears throat> and in the case of um, cognitive abilities, uh, we know that arousal is necessary for alertness and attention, which in turn are necessary for everything else. And so it starts with arousal, and it's good to begin at the beginning. Mm-hmm. With respect to emotional function, uh, whether we are talking about temperament, uh, whether we're talking about feelings or the emotion of the moment, uh, the arousal is necessary for the strength of the, of the behavior. And so it could be that we're just mildly annoyed, or it could be that we're enraged. Mm-hmm. And the difference between those two uh, is uh, the uh, great arousal necessary right. for an enraged mm-hmm. act. But now... Um, so you also so you distinguish different layers of organization, both for emotional processing and cognition, each predicated on the preceding layers. Um, and at the bottom of that, we we then have an, an arousal system, mm-hmm. right? But that's still uh, also earlier I alluded to the sort of steam engine metaphor. I could argue, look okay, arousal could be the steam that you that you pump into in, into this this vat that gives you, but it still doesn't tell you a thing about what you're actually driving with that with that steam engine, right? So so how do I get to a specific insight about what brains are up to? Well, in the first place, you're absolutely right, and so we may have one uh, track of things which we're going toward cognition, and another track of phenomena which we're going toward emotion, but. We both know that I was giving, and, and, and now I'm talking about a minimalist description, mm-hmm. and things are infinitely more complicated than that. That's what keeps neuroscientists fully employed uh, all, over, <laughs> all over the world. Right. And, uh, um, and so 
how how shall I say, how do we get to those specific abilities? I think the proper answer is it's difficult. <laughs> and let's talk about uh, learning ability, uh, depending upon what kind of learning we're talking about. Are we talking about the hippocampus? Are we talking about the cortex? Are we talking about the frontal lobes of the mm -hmm. cortex? It could be all of the above. With respect to emotion, are we talking about the emotional history of the individual? Are we talking about the drugs that the person is taking at the moment? Uh, the person's state of need with respect to hunger, thirst, and so forth? Uh, all of those will come into play, and it's as complicated as the human mind. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would never pretend to be able to chart for you uh, on September 7th of 2012. Uh, almost, I would, for among human abilities, I would not pretend to be able to chart for you any fully described task from my primitive arousal, my powerful mm -hmm. and essential arousal function on the one hand, to the end game, that is, the finished behavioral act on the other. Mm -hmm. I would say even in Aplysia, the great Eric Kandel, Nobel Prize winner for the work on the Gill Withdrawal Reflex of Aplysia, who mapped out a minimalist circuit, but other people who study Aplysia say that that minimalist circuit is not really the only way to do things. Mm -hmm. It's much more complicated than that. Right. Now, I don't know how long since you've seen an Aplysia, but they're stupid. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, even there, mm -hmm. things are more complicated than they seemed. And so I think the task of neuroscience these days is to keep one's mind wide open mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to those minimalist descriptions of the me mechanisms that go into every cognitive ability or every emotional expression. There are always likely to be mechanisms available to us that haven't been discussed yet. Mm -hmm. But you and I uh, have been working in this field long enough uh, that we remember the neuron-centric idea of the brain. But now, functioning in 2012, we know full well that the glial cells are doing very complicated things, especially with respect to glutamatergic action, mm -hmm. uh, that the brain is protected by the blood-brain barrier. We know that there are immune cells in the brain. Uh, when we were little, when, when you and mm -hmm. I were kids, uh, we could talk about the microglia in the brain, which are immune cells. Mm -hmm. But now we can talk about dendritic cells, and we can talk about mast cells in the brain, accounting probably for neuroimmune phenomena, including depression, maybe the fatigue states like chronic fatigue mm -hmm. syndrome. So things, things can be seen as infinitely uh, complicated when we talk about the end goals that you mm -hmm. were asking me for. I'm trying to start at the beginning. I'm also following the dictate of Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein said that every scientific theory should be as simple as possible, but not simpler. Right. And then that's mm. why I'm starting at the beginning. Right. Yeah. But now, so, uh, so, so now we've so, so we wandered into this pretty you know, complex jungle of around arousal, uh, and things are getting indeed hairy. But um, <laughs> on the other hand, you have sort of, if you want compensated for that, for the jump into the deep end. Yes. We're also developing a highly specific, high throughput behavioral essay for this. Yes. Right. So how does that such a behavioral essay now help me to get the handle on this very complex notion of arousal? So here's what we needed. We needed a concept, which we've been talking about. We needed a precise operational definition, which would be that any animal or human or any human being. Uh, is more aroused if he or she uh, is more alert to sensory stimuli, uh, more motoric activity, and more emotionally reactive. And you and I both know people who are off the scales at one end or the other. Consider the hyperthyroid individual. The, the person has too much thyroid hormone. Uh, he or she is responding alertly to every st sensory stimulus. He or she is twitchy, can't stand still. My daughter-in-law is like that. You sit in her kitchen. She is never standing still. And he or she is very reactive emotionally, uh, able to uh, weep or able to laugh readily. At the other end, let's consider the uh, hypothyroid individual. The person does, clinically does not have enough thyroid hormone. Uh, that person will be not reactive to sensory stimuli, sluggish, not moving around very much, the ultimate couch potato, mm -hmm. and also flat emotionally. We, we know folks who are flat emotionally. So there's the operational definition in human examples. But uh, I work on animal brains, and so we have this assay where the uh, mice are closed off from the world. They're on their own little world, about uh, one meter long and one meter wide and one meter tall. And uh, we present to them sensory stimuli by computer. We measure their, their uh, uh, motion 50 times per second 
24 hours per day, Mm -hmm. seven days per week, and we measure their fear responses. That's what stands in for an emotional response. So it gives us an objective measurement, uh, the way a physicist would want, of this global uh, uh, behavioral concept arousal. So we have the concept uh, and the assay, mm-hmm. and now we want to study the neuronal mechanisms. Right, exactly. So, so now, now that we have this assay and, and you have this, this high-resolution measurement, first is what, what are now, for this mouse, for this setup, what are the operational definitions for, for arousal? Uh, greater response to olfactory stimuli, okay. uh, greater response to a, a very gentle touch stimulus, a tactile stimulus, and a, gen- and a greater response to a vestibular stimulus, mm-hmm. which would be shaking. The, uh, the animal is standing on something which is shaking. Also, the animal is moving more. Also, the animal, it, w- when presented with a conditioned stimulus for fear, for the shock, the animal will freeze. The animal mm-hmm. will stand still. Um, that's moving less, and, and moving less in, in in response to the conditional stimulus for fear. Yeah, but that that might be contradictory because moving more was the operational definition of high arousal. It's but opposite, but not contradictory mm-hmm. because it's under very specific conditions, mm-hmm. the conditioned stimulus for fear. Then the animal has to move less. Right. The animal behaviorist would call it risk assessment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mouse, which al- almost everything can eat a mouse, and the mouse is freezing, trying to be invisible against its environment, saying, "Oh my God." Mm-hmm. What is happening here? I'm so not going okay. to move. Yeah, but then that would mean the the better definition might be just the, in, the let's say the intensity with which the response is executed. Otherwise, we would have a sort of a potential inconsistency between the freezing behavior and exploratory behavior. The intensity and the situational dependence. Uh-huh. When the animal is just wandering around, it's more activity. But when the animal has been given the conditioned stimulus for fear, mm-hmm. it's saying, whoa, mm-hmm. uh, let's stop. Let's, let's, let's not do anything until we find out what's going on. Sure. Yeah. Or, or the, the cat might get me. Yes. Mm-hmm. So or, now, or the hawk, or, or the hawk, or or Don the, himself, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's not healthy for a mouse to be in my laboratory, yeah. right? But then, um, so what? What you said is that you could account for thirty percent of the behavior in in this essay, yes, from this perspective of arousal. Mm-hmm. So how should I interpret that? What does that really mean? It means that the animal's behavior is is varying, is changing all over the place. And when you put the animal in a large number of tests, all of which have something to do with arousal, you then find out what's correlated with what. uh, The fancy word would be that it's a covariance matrix. Mm -hmm. Uh, What that really means is is the animal who is the most aroused in this uh, test also most aroused in test number two, most aroused in test number three, and so forth and so forth and so forth. When you do that for a large number of tests and a large number of mice— you can say, aha, there are certain forces beneath all of these tests that are regulating the animal's behavior and these arousal-related tests. Mm-hmm. How much can I account for by one big, massive, let's call it generalized arousal? Mm-hmm. And the answer was about 30%. Okay. Now, <clears throat> our colleagues this morning uh, in our meeting pointed out that there must be many other determinants of behavior in addition to generalized arousal. And so when the animal is responding to any individual reason uh, for getting excited. Let's say it's fear, let's say it's food, it's, it's hunger, it's sex, anything that arouses uh, a human being. For you and me, it could be a, t- a scientific exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found them very arousing. I, I, I always did too. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, then we say, what percentage roughly uh, of our, our overall excitement is mm-hmm. due to this generalized arousal? Maybe 30%. But then the other 70% are due to all the other complex causes of behavior, mm-hmm. specific causes uh, to one situation or another. But would you be willing to consider, let's say, as a second source, uh, two non-specific arousal, specific forms of arousal? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and so we could talk about uh, the arousal of the male approaching the female. Mm-hmm. We could talk about the arousal of, a, of an animal or a human being, which is woken up because he is hungry. And so the erection neurons uh, in the hypothalamus are receiving the input that the animal is hungry, uh, uh, causing the animal to wake up or the human being to wake up. I wake up in the middle of the night and I head for the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and then one reduces the hunger drive uh, by eating and then one can go back to sleep. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then, um, so how much would that add to the 30% if we take specific arousal into account as well? I don't, I don't know. 
Okay. What uh, would you do I, a bet if you just have to bet? Think of the okay. Uh, think of the uh, is the prize a, a, a good glass of wine, perhaps? Yeah. Well, if you want, <coughs> sure, okay. no problem. Yeah, okay. So um, let, let's say that every behavior is like an equation. If we neuroscientists are trying to go away from philosophy, uh, we as young people knew that very smart guys uh, and, and, and women, uh, going all the way back to the Greeks, were talking about the causation of behavior. And they could elaborate very great philosophical theories about behavior. And we read about these century after century after century. Uh, how can we go away from that and turn this behavior into a science? And the, the way we do it is to have precise definitions and to think of behavior as quantitative equations. Now, for the equation of the, the rat who is hungry or the human being, the guy who's hungry in the middle of the night, uh, let's say on the left side of the equation is the behavioral result, uh, getting up and going to the refrigerator. On the right side of the equation are many terms. The, the generalized arousal term is just one of them. Now, you're asking me, what about the rest? What about the other 70%? For that glass of wine, I'm going to bet for, that, for the simple act of uh, eating that maybe the hunger drive accounts for another 50%, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so now we're up to 80%. And now you're going to ask me, what about the other 20%? Uh, and I'm going to say uh, that there are other facts about the mm -hmm. person's personality, which make him either, maybe he feels sorry for himself. And that accounts for mm -hmm. another 19%. Right. Now, in a, in a way, uh, you could say, well, this is pretty good, because if we're right about this as scientists, we're accounting for a motivated behavior. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I'm certainly going to have, at least as I explain in this fictitious manner, at least 1% to 5% due to slop. I'm not going to know. And, you're, and you, as a realistic scientist, are going to say to me, yes, we're going to give Don 1% to 5%. Mm -hmm. But this is embarrassing in a way as a scientist, and especially a scientist who wants to achieve the precision of physics. And here's why. Suppose you were a judge. And you were deciding about an American judge where there is a capital punishment. A person can be put to death, let's say, by lethal injection mm -hmm. for murdering somebody. And you're a judge who's deciding about capital punishment. Do you want to have a 5% chance of error that as a, as, as a mature judge out of every 100 individuals whom you sentence to death, that you sentence five of them to death by accident? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. And so we're really still... Uh, we're, we're, we're still striving hard. We're trying mm -hmm. hard to but reduce clear, that error. But it's clear that you want to go for the full bottle of wine, and one, one glass is not, it's I, not sufficient. I, I, I want to go for 100%, <laughs> right. but on September 7th of 2012, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm sure about the 30%, and I'm right. guessing pretty well about the 50%, mm -hmm. And I'm pretending mm -hmm. uh, that we're just guessing about the other 20%. Right. Yeah. But now, but now there's, there are historical examples where people try to develop, let's say, a physics of behavior. Yes. Right, in a comparable... I'm thinking about Clark Hull, for instance, with the most elaborate theory of this kind Absolutely. in psychology. yeah. Which, in some sense, also collapsed under its own weight, right? Yes. And then he had to... He had to... As soon as a new paradigm was discovered, let's say eye blink conditioning was on one of his difficult cases, he had to start to add ad hoc parameters mm -hmm. to keep the whole thing afloat and so I'll, on. I'll tell you a secret. Okay, tell me uh, a secret. The secret is that he started too complicated... Uh, as an ambitious and arrogant scientist, he and other people uh, said, we're going we're gonna to explain learning. Uh, we're going to take the behaviorism of B.F. Skinner and we're going to uh, make it into an elaborate theory, not like B.F. Skinner, and, and do explain learning. Mm -hmm. uh, the secret is to start much simpler. Start with behaviors that the animals don't have to learn. Uh, start with behaviors that have the, the simplest possible sensory determinants the simplest possible motor outputs, and the simple po simplest possible regulatory elements. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. Right. Uh, I started this a long time ago, an embarrassing number of years ago. And uh, as a chemi chemistry student, I had figured out uh, that these steroids are actually hormones, and they're very simple chemicals. A, a steroid hormone is a rigid, flat piece of, of carbon atoms, mm. uh, which you can draw on a piece of paper. If we were doing this in video, I could draw a steroid hormone for you in about 30 seconds. And it turns out that these steroid hormones regulate simple behaviors, not, mm -hmm. not learned behaviors necessarily, but simple behaviors. And the simplest of all is sex. 
And among the simplest uh, sex behaviors are behavior where the animal doesn't even have to, have to locomote. Mm-hmm. Locomotion is pretty hard, actually. Yeah, uh, but before we before we go to the sex behavior, yeah, I think there's there's a step in between, right? Because I think there's another really important difference between what you're what you're doing and what Clark Hall is doing. Because by simplifying the behavior you explain, yes, you 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 do not necessarily insure yourself against failure, right? You can still, the complexity can still be too high to come to a physics of behavior. Oh, yes, it's easy easy to fail. Exactly, there's no certainty. Yeah. But you, I think, have added a new ingredient in this equation, which is a neuroscientific one. Yes. Right? You have been mapping this functional interpretation of behavior and arousal also back onto the brain. And now things start to become, I think, it becomes a very different game and a game that, that Hull couldn't play because now we have new constraints. Yes. Now we have the neural substrate. Yes. Right? So I think that really distinguishes what you're doing from, from these more traditional approaches. So how, how does, has this helped you to look at the substrate? What, what are the insights? There? Well, first, let's talk about the tools that compared to the behavioral neuroscientists, or shall we say the behavioral scientists mm-hmm. of 60 years ago or 50 years ago, on the neuroanatomical side, we know so much more about nerve cells connected to other nerve cells than people did 50 years ago. Uh, techniques that uh, map cell-to-cell connectivity and discriminate individual cell types and sh- say, where do these cell types go? This is available to us now. Uh, in terms of the physiology, the function of neurons, we have electrical recording techniques that we didn't used to have. Mm-hmm. We can record from single nerve cells, whereas people couldn't do that so well 60 years ago. We can also not only record the cortical electroencephalogram, EEG, with precision, but we can analyze it with mathematical detail. Uh, we can get nerve cells into the dish. And instead of having it mixed up with all the other nerve cells in the brain, we, and I did this on Tuesday. We're now talking on Friday. On Tuesday, I was looking at individual nerve cells mm-hmm. in a so-called nerve cell line. And I could bring my pipette in, a tiny pipette, which has a tip of one micron, which would be one millionth of a meter. Uh, and bring that next to the nerve cell and record the nerve cell's activity. So on the physiological, electrical side, we have tools. Let's talk about the chemistry. We have the the chemistry of uh, neurotransmitters now that weren't so much known then. And we now know that there are these neuromodulators called neuropeptides, which are tiny pieces of proteins, which are now not fully described necessarily, but compared to 60 years ago. I mean, we're in heaven compared Mm -hmm. to 60 years. We're in nirvana. And now we have molecular biology. Uh, The gene expressed in the nervous system and the regulations of those genes by transcription factors. Uh, Clark Hull Hull didn't know about DNA and he Mm. didn't know about transcription factors, but now we know these things. Sure, exactly. And And every one of these tools can be brought. And the way it works out is that any individual... Uh, probably can master only a small subset of these tools. So if we think of all the tools available to the neuroscientist in the year 2012 as a circle, each individual neuroscientist or even each team of neuroscientists will have a small wedge, a Mm -hmm. small maybe 10 degrees of that circle, or maybe if we're very smart, 11 degrees Mm -hmm. of that circle. And we have to read about the other 349 degrees or in some cases, we collaborate with guys and, and teams who know about the other 349 in order to make a story. And right, sometimes exactly. we succeed and sometimes we don't. Right. Uh, you, you choose your problem right. Mm. If you're surrounded by people who are smarter than you are uh, and work long mm. enough, then you can succeed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's very good. But now, in, of all these possibilities we, you, you have uh, in, the, in, the, in the arsenal, you highlighted two in particular. So, so on the one end, it was to map a functional notion of arousal to neuromodulation. Yes. Right. And the other one then to map it to very specific ascending, descending neurons in, in the yes. brainstem. So let's first look at neuromodulation. So how does a neuromodulation view on arousal help us to sort of get a better grasp on this functional notion? Well, we're starting with the more complex part of it, but let's talk about it. Um, neuromodulators are typically hormones or small pieces of proteins. And so uh, if we think about uh, neuromodulation of the animal alerting because there's danger in the environment, chances are we're talking about a little piece of a peptide called CRF, corticotropin-releasing factor. 
the guy that discovered that died just about six years ago, and mm-hmm. I mean six months ago, and his name was Wiley Vale. Mm-hmm. And uh, many years ago, maybe maybe 20 years ago, he described these, uh, it's about 40 amino acids in a row, which is CRF, operating through three types of receptors. And the neurons, which are most essential uh, for turning on the rest of the brain, have CRF receptors. And so that, that would be one way in which a neuromodulation uh, could tell the individual, oops, you are in a situation where something bad has happened. You're in a part of town uh, where you were robbed, or you're uh, in a situation with your girlfriend where she's going to get angry at you. In these cases, you're made alert in order to not do the wrong thing, in the wrong part of town to avoid getting killed, uh, with your girlfriend to avoid losing her, Mm -hmm. or boyfriend to avoid losing him. And so there's an example of how a specific chemical could set up the arousal system to say, whoops, Mm -hmm. let's be careful about this. Now, what about the pathways that are being acted upon? The the neuroscientists uh, will quickly start talking about pathways that go from lower parts of the brain, like the brain stem above the spinal cord, to upper parts of the brain, like the, like the forebrain, uh, the cerebral cortex in a, mm-hmm. in a human being. Uh, and, and those pathways, their chemistry is known. Uh, norepinephrine and dopamine, uh, anybody that's used cocaine or methamphetamine is operating on norepinephrine and dopamine systems, probably with disastrous complications. Serotonin, uh, anybody who's taken his antidepressant today, his serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, SSRI, uh, has been manipulating the serotonin system. Uh, histamine, uh, well, uh, if you took your, your, uh, your allergy medicine today, and if it was an old type of allergy medicine, it made you sleepy. And the reason it made you sleepy was because it blocked histamine receptors. Mm-hmm. And acetylcholine, if we're talking now about, an, uh, let's say, an 85-year-old person who's succumbing to Alzheimer's disease, his doctor is giving him a drug which will slow the breakdown of acetylcholine so that the acetylcholine can come to our cerebral, that guy's cerebral cortex and try to keep him functioning a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. So right. those are five ascending systems. Mm-hmm. But it also turns out there are systems going from the upper part of the brain to the lower part of the brain. And those are more complicated to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I, I think rather than talking about their chemistry, what I'd like to say is that part of arousal is the autonomic nervous system. You and I know that the James Lange theory mm-hmm. of emotion was that a person gets a sense of fear partly because his guts and his heart and his breathing are telling him that he's afraid. Well, what about those controls? Mm-hmm. The autonomic nervous system controls, sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system are controlled fr- by systems going from the upper part of the brain to the lower part mm-hmm. of the brain. And of course, uh, I'm especially excited about nerve cells that could contribute to both. Right, exactly. Yeah. And we, we're going we're gonna to get to those, right? Because in some sense, what you were uh, if we look at this neuromodulatory view, you can talk about, let's say, what you also call the high and the low road mm-hmm. t- towards controlling arousal. Mm-hmm. So how should I think about that with respect to these neuromodulatory systems? Well, uh, the, let's consider the evolution of the brain uh, from the simplest vertebrate animal, which would be a fish or even a simple fish like a lamprey. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know what the Latin word for lamprey is. Uh, up to the most complicated individuals, which I would still think would be human beings. Um, in the simplest individuals, we have the low road to arousal, and that would be the uh, systems that go from the, from the spinal cord through the lower part of the brainstem, down where our neck is, along the roof of our mouth, which would be through the hypothalamus, to the basal forebrain, which is quite primitive, and that's what we call the low road to arousal. And in fact, uh, some cholinergic neurons are at, 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 at the target of that low road of arousal. But... As we move into higher forms of vertebrates, even mammals, we're developing that thalamocortical system. So that would mean that perched on top of the brainstem is something called the thalamus. And the thalamus is the Greek word for antechamber. And the reason it's called the antechamber, the thalamus, is because it is the doorway to the cerebral cortex. All of these high roads of, to arousal go through the antechamber to the, to the crowning glory of the, ver- of the mammalian brain, the cerebral cortex. So the high road would go from the lower brainstem into this thing called the thalamus, and then certain thalamocortical pathways uh, would wake up. Mm-hmm. 
and when we're lucky, both of them are working at <laughs> right. uh, the high road and the low road. But all the, the neuromodulatory systems you alluded to earlier would completely bypass the thalamus. They are directly tapping into the neocortex. Uh, I think they do, yes. Yeah. I really think, I, I, I would agree with that. So then this, this high road seems to be more based on, let's say, glutamatergic uh, transduction, uh, probably conveying signals from the periphery, memory, et cetera, into neocortex. Would, is this really the, the, the distinction you would agree with? You have to be correct in the sense that uh, one of the important inputs to the medial part of the thalamus is a glutamatergic input from the mesencephalic, the midbrain reticular mm -hmm. formation, also called mesencephalic reticular formation. So when the neurologist, Nicholas Schiff, S-C-H-I-F-F, -F, stimulated the brain of a vegetative state patient in the, in the central thalamus, and he woke up that patient so that patient could be conscious, uh, he, he lays the success of his electrical stimulation to the fact that he was stimulating glutamatergic inputs to the me medial mm -hmm. thalamus. Right, exactly. Okay, so now, so we have this high and low road, and then what you also mentioned earlier, in some sense, of course, we can now start to think about, okay, but how could these systems possibly be coupled in some way, mm -hmm. right? And what, what, you were, what you were talking about there was very, very a unique category of cells that you found in the brainstem mm -hmm. that might be, let's say, some sort of mediators between these, this high and low road of, of arousal, possibly. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm just, this is my interpretation mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. So what makes these cells so special? Their size and their location. Okay. Uh, uh, you and I both know that the, the name of the game uh, in neuroanatomy and in, in the brain research is just like real estate in New York City. Location, location, location. Mm -hmm. Probably real estate in Barcelona as well. I think so. Yeah. I, I think so, yeah. And so these cells have the right connections, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you're a politician and you talk to your sister... You may not be too uh, influential, but if you talk to William Clinton, the former president of the United States, and he talks to everybody, well, then you're going to be influential. Uh, talking to these nerve cells, which are called nucleus gigantocellularis, these mm -hmm. nerve cells, they're huge. They're, let's call them giant nerve cells, mm -hmm. nucleus gigantocellularis. Talking with them is a little bit like talking with Bill Clinton, mm -hmm. uh, because they talk in turn— not only to uh, systems ascending the nervous system up in the uh, midbrain, so for, for, for example, but also down in the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that they have a unique role. Okay, but now, so, so what makes them gigantic? So in terms of, if you would compare them to your standard, let's say, layer 5 pyramidal cell, in terms of their, let's say, cell body, their dendrite, their axons, how, how are they, why are they gigantic? Honestly, the answer is I don't know. Okay. Uh, within the past six months, I've gone to people smarter than me. James Darnell, the great cell biologist mm -hmm. who's a uh, molecular biologist at, at Rockefeller University, and several other people like him, and said, what about these huge cells? Is there something about their gene expression which is likely to be unique? Which was which I automatically would know that I'm dealing with nucleus gigantocellularis neuron because it expresses the X factor, mm -hmm. uh, and all we can think of uh, is no, there is no X factor. Mm -hmm. It's simply more of the same. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were to say to me, "Why is there more of the same?" I would have to get very nervous and say, "I just don't know the answer to mm -hmm. that." Right. I, I want to find that out, mm -hmm. and within, I would say, within the next six months. We'll be doing molecular biological experiments attempting to answer your question. Right, exactly. But now, yeah. okay, let, let, let's try to understand these cells a bit better, right? So if we talk about to what, how they're organized in the particular formation, the brainstem, how distributed are they? Are they very clumpy and clustered, or is it sort of diffuse in they, the structure? They tend to be diffuse, and I'll, first I'll be literal, and then I'll reflect on, on mm -hmm. our state of knowledge in neuroscience at the moment. Um, uh, reticular formation comes from the word for reticule, and a reticule is like a grid. And so if we were to look, let's say, through a microscope, and we see a bunch of vertical lines crossing and a bunch of horizontal lines crossing them, uh, then we're talking about a reticule. When you look at a cross-section of the reticular formation, that's what it looks like. You see these cell bodies in their separate little boxes, so to speak, but you see these fibers zooming back and forth, vertically and mm -hmm. horizontally, and that's why it was called the reticular formation. And so going all the way from... Uh, the, the brain just above the spinal cord, up into, the th into, but not including the thalamus, we have this kind of pattern. Now, I might say that the a couple of the questions that you're asking <clears throat> are touching on the very frontiers of neuroscience. And you and I hope 
that many people, not just uh, our friends, our colleagues, our students who are already in the know, so to speak, uh, will listen to this. But we also hope that many, many people in many different countries uh, who don't exactly know what this neuroscience is all about are going to listen to mm. all of your podcast. How many did you say you have at well, the moment? Well, we should have about 50 by now or so. Yeah, 50, 50 plus. And, and going, right? Yeah, yeah, 50 sure. and, and yeah, growing. Yeah. Do I hear 51? Do I hear 52? <laughs> oh, yeah, you will. So, so, and by one year from now, you'll probably have 60. Mm-hmm. And so we hope that large numbers of people, one, people who are deciding what to study, and two, citizens who are paying for this, because we both know that good neuroscience and good science of any sort is dependent upon good economy. And good economy is, is dependent on governments collecting taxes and knowing that the scientists are doing the best possible thing with the money, either to push back uh, the envelope and, and push back the frontiers of knowledge with respect to what we know about ourselves mm-hmm. or, for that matter, what we know about the universe. Right. So in that spirit, I would, what I'd like to do is to say that there will be free in economically developing countries coming from the publisher Springer. So mm-hmm. this would be the uh, formerly German me- medical publisher. It used to be called Springer Verlag, but mm-hmm. now it's just Springer. Uh, they worked at cost, and all of the editors and the authors worked for free uh, to produce an online text called Neuroscience in the 21st Century. Mm-hmm. And while it will be sold as a regular electronic text to universities in developed countries like Germany or the States or Japan, in large numbers of uh, economically developing countries, which are Identified by low gross domestic product per mm-hmm. capita. And there's a, a specific list mm-hmm. of 78 of these countries and uh, the, another 28 w- where they get this list of Springer things for a very, very small amount of money. Uh, this electronic text will be published and we hope that people will make use of it. Two, besides our talking on this Friday afternoon, uh, there are two organized ways of, of getting this out. And one would be the International Brain Research Organization. Right. You and I call it EBRO, mm-hmm. International Brain Research Organization, uh, head, headquartered in Switzerland. And the other would be the Human Frontiers Science Program, headed, headed in Strasbourg, France. Mm-hmm. And both of these organizations are devoted to the neuroscience as an international uh, enterprise. And so all the university librarian in Zimbabwe, let's say, or in Sierra Leone or in Sri Lanka, the university librarian just has to tell Springer what the IP number of their computer is. And then automatically, they not only get this text that I've done, Neuroscience in the 21st Century, 106 chapters, Mm -hmm. including a chapter about how to set up a neuroscience program in a developing country. Mm -hmm. The great Canadian, uh, Richard Brown, great sense of humor. Uh, I wrote that chapter, how to, send, how to Set Up a Neuroscience Program in a Developing Country. What's the order of things to do, the problems you're going mm-hmm. to have, and so forth. Uh, 106 chapters. And the university librarian will get that text, and then everybody associated with the university, the students mm-hmm. and faculty, get it for free. So we hope that this effort, which we're doing with podcasts here in Barcelona, Barcelona, mm-hmm. uh, will be supplemented uh, by Ebro's efforts and by Human Frontiers right. Science Program efforts. Mm. Yeah. Well, that would be that would be excellent. Be, and I um, say and I say that because now your questions, uh, although we'll, uh, maybe not continue in that vein, are touching on the frontiers of neuroscience. What makes that j- large cell the way it is? Mm-hmm. Don, uh, nucleus gigantocellulars, how did it get to be that way? Right. And the answer is, I hope to start studying that within six months. <laughs> yeah. Right, that's very yeah. good. So now this is an excellent initiative, and, and we definitely support that. Um, but in some sense, I would I would still I would like to go back to the frontier of neuroscience, and, and think a little bit more and discuss a bit more about about these these cells. Yes. Because you said you 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 estimate there might be around a thousand of them. Let's say more or less. Good guess. Right. So they're embedded in this sort of matrix structure of the particular formation. Um, they have both ascending and descending projections. Precisely. Um, that extend over millimeters, I assume, because yes. they have to touch... Depending on the size of the brain. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you call them then the, the, the first responders. A, so fa- a fashion model with a long neck uh, <laughs> may have... A supermodel may have a long axon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> so um, so now, now the question becomes, what are they really responding to? So you showed some physiology of these neurons, mm-hmm. right? So... Um, what what do they, these guys like? What do they respond to? Well, your question uh, during our discussions this morning was right on, <clears throat> and that is that these uh, cells have dendrites. That would be dendrite comes from the Greek word for tree branch, mm-hmm. uh, which are very unusual. Uh, if we take the first segment of the dendrite as it emerges from the cell body, it has a certain length. Let's call it L. 
The next segment after that branching point will be longer than L. It'll be LL. Mm. And the next segment after that, going farther away from the cell body, will be longer than that, LLL. And you can picture, therefore, that, 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 that these birds have very big wings. Mm-hmm. These nerve cells have a very large spread. And therefore, they're beautifully uh, attuned to be able to pick up large numbers of signals from sensory neurons, uh, sensory stimuli. Mm-hmm. And we know that they're capable of responding to every sensory stimulus mm-hmm. we could give them. Right. Vision might be the worst, mm-hmm. uh, but since these are on the hindbrain, it was rather surprising that they responded as well as they did to olfactory stimuli because the olfactory stimuli come in the nose, mm-hmm. uh, but they did respond to olfactory right. stimuli. So even though um, these are not sensory, the, these cells we're talking about are not out in the skin or they're not in the eye or mm-hmm. they're not in the nose, they seem to be central for telling the rest of the central nervous system that something just happened. Right, but now <clears throat> what are their ascending targets ascending targets uh in i'm not going to name all of them because i I might make somebody ill Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i probably would forget some but they're going forward in the brainstem to the to the uh, higher up parts of the particular formation they're going to the hypothalamus and they're going to the central thalamus mm-hmm. uh, where you can stimulate in order to wake up the individual. Right, exactly. Yeah. Are they also targeting structures like this periaqueductal gray, for instance? Yes. Okay. That's an incredibly important target. Mm-hmm. Yes, right, absolutely. Because they would have more behavioral outputs, oh, right? Oh, yeah, because stimulating the... Uh, if you want to make an animal attack another animal, I mean, it's quite quite sad, actually, and quite vicious, mm-hmm. uh, then stimulating the periaqueductal gray. That's called the central gray because it's right in the middle of the midbrain, and remember that the aqueduct is filled full of uh, cerebrospinal fluid. Mm-hmm. It's like a landlocked lake, uh, which is in the middle of the brain. And people don't exactly know what it's doing. Is it is it is it just a pressure absorber to protect the brain mm-hmm. from a from a traumatic injury, or is it a vehicle of communication? I think that many people would say that it's a vehicle of communication. They would speculate that the nervous system has a navy mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and, and that, that signals can go up and down. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, uh, people are just working that out now. Right. Yeah. But again, then, again, that's on the frontiers of neuroscience. Sure. Yeah. But on top of that, you found that, that interestingly enough, some of these neurons also coupled rather directly uh, both to the circulatory system mm-hmm. and to each other. Yes, to each other for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know how quantitatively important that is. Mm-hmm. If we were to say, if this is an important part of the brain, this particular formation, and its output is a certain amount, let's call it 100, what portion of that 100 units of output is due to them talking with each other? Uh, we, we're not sure. Mm-hmm. We, we're sure that it would make signaling faster, but how much faster? Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that some of these neurons can get pick up signals from the blood, and we're excited about that because we know that some uh, mental illnesses have something to do with the immune system. And if these nerve cells are picking up proteins in the blood, if they're receptive to proteins in the blood which reflect mm-hmm. infections, for example, or even HIV, AIDS, mm-hmm. uh, then that would be very important. Right. But right now we're in the realm of speculation. Although you did show in the morning that you have data that shows that these neurons can actually absorb substances that float around in the blood, right? It is so possible. It is possible. But is it a small story or a big story? Sure. This is... Shall we spend this weekend in the laboratory <laughs> by trying to find out? That's a good idea. <laughs> but then uh, what, what is, what's the transmitter they use? Uh, glutamate. Glutamate. Oh, glutamate. Some of them use GABA, and I can't figure out why. Okay. Uh, this is a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, glutamate is what we were expecting, and many of them do use glutamate. Some of them use GABA. And as you pointed out, and as uh, Nick pointed out in, in our discussions this morning, even as it is important to figure out what makes these nerve cells fire their signals, their action potentials, it's equally important to understand how to keep them quiet when mm-hmm. nothing is happening. Right, exactly. Because their their output would be meaningless if they're chattering away all the time. Sure. It's like you uh, when certain people can't stop talking, you mm-hmm. stop listening to them. Mm-hmm. Whereas another person... He hardly says anything, but when he says it, we all listen. Right. Uh, so how do we keep them quiet? Mm-hmm. And it was pointed out in the morning uh, discussion that small nerve cells nearby the giant nerve cells might use the uh, uh, transmitter GABA, mm-hmm. gamma aminobutyric acid, in order to keep these cells shut up right. and quiet mm-hmm. when there's nothing important to say. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very good. So then w- what is their descending target? Uh the entire spinal cord is, okay. is the safest thing to say. Right. Both motor neurons directly and interneurons mm-hmm. indirectly. 
And are there any specific patterns to their to these uh, terminations they have in spinal cord? Not really, not that I know of. Uh, the, the best way to study about this would be to study the work of the uh, really accomplished Dutch neuroanatomist Hert Holstega, who's in uh, Groningen. Would mm-hmm. you say? Groningen, it, yeah. Oh, there you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in in the United States is a wonderful physiologist by the name of Barry Peterson with an S O N Peterson, mm-hmm. and you put his neurophysiology together with Hert's. Uh, neuroanatomy, and you have a picture of a whopping, massive signal to the spinal cord, but it's hard to figure out mm-hmm. any specificity. Right. So now here, we're, so here we have these these neurons, uh, fairly. There's sort of clusters of them. They're coupled through these inhibitory uh, local neurons, uh, having both these ascending and descending uh, projections. If you want regulating lots of subsystems in, mm-hmm. in, in the brain, right? And and in some sense, you. You started to look at these as these neurons after you had been trying to dissect also these subsystems mm-hmm. in in a, in a more um, complete way. So mm. so you were describing how you took very specific sexual behaviors, for instance, yes. to try to understand um, how let's say this kind of behavior regulation could take place. And these these first responders we just talked about these these, these large neurons in the brainstem could be like a substrate that helps with this kind of behavior yes, regulation. Right? I think so. So. To, so to understand on the other side of that, that, that story, um, so how, how should I think about the regulation of a very behavior, basic behavioral pattern? Mm-hmm. So I think that so many neuroscientists are interested in how the body informs the brain of what needs to be done. After all, um, I think it was the talk, uh, uh, Nick's talk mm-hmm. uh, yesterday, had the quotation from Theodosius Dobzhansky, who a geneticist who incidentally worked on my campus at Rockefeller University, who was quoted as saying, nothing makes sense except in the light of evolution. And therefore, uh, we have to say that the brain, and, and Herr Holsteg would say the same thing, really has two functions, to keep the individual alive and to prolong the species. And so there are all of these motivated behaviors uh, which are meant to uh, make life longer and more worthwhile, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Longer in the case of a laboratory rat and perhaps more worthwhile in the case of a citizen of Spain or Mm -hmm. the citizen of the United States and so forth. And among those things would be the hunger and the thirst motivations, the fear to avoid danger. But what I chose to study... Uh, was a very simple system which is triggered and modulated by a hormone whose chemistry is very, very well known. These steroid hormones, the same kinds of steroids that athletes are not supposed to use, Mm -hmm. uh, are simple, flat molecules. And it turns out that sex behavior in these lower animals absolutely depends upon them. Uh, Estrogens in the female and androgens in the male. So androgens would mean, uh, from the from the Greek, what is it that makes a male, mm-hmm. androgen. And estrogen, what is it that makes a female. And uh, the, the estrogens and the androgens circulate in the blood uh, from the ovaries and, and the testes, respectively. And because the brain is looking for lipid molecules, like, like uh, the hormones, these hormones go right into the brain and they flood the entire brain, estrogens and androgens. But... In certain parts of the brain, there are proteins and certain neurons that soak up these steroid hormones, and they're called hormone receptors. So an estrogen would bind to a protein called an estrogen receptor. A testosterone, an androgen, uh, would bind to an androgen receptor. Let's stick with the estrogens. Uh, It turns out that this protein, which is called estrogen receptor alpha, is manufactured by nerve cells in the primitive part of the forebrain, which is called the limbic system, the amygdala, the hippocampus, the septum, and so forth, and also in the hypothalamus. So it is a limbic hypothalamic system. And again, from the fish to the philosopher, uh, the limbic hypothalamic system is well and thriving, uh, Mm -hmm. working to receive hormones and to regulate behavior. So that was the first step of making a big advance in explaining how sex behavior happens, is to know where the receptors are. Secondly, uh, the receptors are at the top of a behavior-regulating loop. Now, let's think of the loop from the sensory stimulus, which would be being touched by the male on the flanks of the animal, and and the signals go into the spinal cord, up the spinal cord to the nucleus gigantocellularis, Mm. and also to the midbrain central gray, which you mentioned, the periaqueductal gray. And there, if the animal's ready to mate, 
if the estrogens are circulating and have turned on the estrogen receptor alpha, which in turn, in turn turned on certain genes, uh, then a signal will come from the hypothalamus to tell that midbrain aqueductal gray, periaqueductal gray, yes, this is a go. Mm -hmm. This is ready. We are ready to mate. And then the descending side of the circuit goes back down through nucleus gigantocellularis, mm -hmm. back down to the spinal cord. And it says to the spinal cord, when you are touched on your flanks by the male, dorsiflex your, um, your spinal cord. That would mean lift your rump so that the male can fertilize. If and only if the female quadruped, the female with four uh, feet, uh, does that, then fertilization will occur mm -hmm. and mating will occur. Right. So we have the entire circuit. And by the way, uh, uh, if I can pat my colleagues on the back, it was the first circuit for any mammalian behavior, any vertebrate behavior for that matter. Now, at that point, as you know, we got lucky mm -hmm. because uh, when I started this work, the phrase transcription factor was not even a, a phrase. Nobody had that idea. But a transcription factor is a neuron, is a protein that tells a gene either to turn on or to turn off. It can work either way. And it turns out that the estrogen receptors that we had discovered are transcription factors which are regulated by the hormone. So if and only if the hormone like estradiol in a female comes from the blood and touches that estrogen receptor and binds to it, if and only if that happens, uh, the uh, estrogen receptor will bind to DNA to a specific sequence of nucleotide bases on the DNA and will turn on genes. And we know what several of those genes are. And then that affects the activity of that cell. And it gives an estrogen-dependent signal back to the midbrain and the behavior occurs. Mm -hmm. right. So at this point, we know the neuroanatomy of this behavior, simple behavior. We know the electrophysiology and we know uh, some of the g functional genomics of, mm -hmm. of the behavior. Right, so this is this is a really very complete description of of a very specific behavioral uh, subsystem, mm -hmm. but the the question that it, that it raises is that uh, so do you believe this generalizes to any type of behavioral subsystem? Like the philosopher might not only um, you know engage in in reproductive behaviors, they might also read a book. Yes, and reading a book might be under less hormonal control yeah. than reproductive behavior. So will it? generalize to mm -hmm. the ability of philosophers to read a book? The answer is I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, probably, um, we talked about ripple analogies uh, in one of the talks uh, in this meeting. And what's probably going to happen is that my behavioral system, which we've explained, is like throwing the rock into the water. And it shows how to explain a simple mammalian behavior, and uh, the ripples will mm -hmm. spread. And so we'll, from this example, we'll learn how to study other simple motivated behaviors, and we'll start approaching even more complex mm -hmm. behaviors, like uh, let's say the philosopher is a graduate student in philosophy, and he would like to pass his test in order to get his PhD. And we could call that um, mastery motivation. Um, what's the word? Um, it's a motivation for accomplishment, mm -hmm. and it used to be studied by something called a thematic apperception test. And there was, uh, it's mastery. There's a word. Um, I'm wait. not a native speaker, so I'm yeah, excused. Yeah, there's probably a good Dutch word for it. <laughs> and, and probably, I know all the Dutch words for it. And probably the Dutch words are better than the American <laughs> words. Uh, but um, uh, you could measure uh, mm -hmm. people's uh, uh, motivation to do complicated things. Mm -hmm. And this philosophy graduate student, this, this fictitious student that we're, whom we're talking about, is going to have that kind of motivation. Now, will that sort of behavioral regulation follow the same kind of simple pattern? Mm -hmm. I, would not, I would not bet on it. But for instance, to, to, to make it easier, would you believe that even in that also in that behavior, the hypothalamus would be playing a coordinating role, as it does in the sexual behavior? I suspect that the hypothalamus will be down at the core of it, even as the magma is down at the core of the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, but the magma doesn't explain everything about the earth. There are many things about the mountains and the oceans and the, uh, mm -hmm. the caves uh, of the earth and the weather of the earth that mm -hmm. the magma cannot explain. No, but this, this is very important, right? Because you are saying whatever behaviors we observe, they're all driven by motivation. There's a motivational driver of this, which comes back to your arousal system in some form. Yes. And... The, the core structure that is setting it up is the hypothalamus. So in some sense, that would imply without hypothalamus, you will have no motivated behavior, mm -hmm. whether they're abstract reading of books 
or the reproductive behaviors that occurred just before it. I think that's right. And so we're, uh, I think you and I are very interested in striving forward into forms of behavioral regulation, notably social behaviors, mm-hmm. uh, which are not likely to subsume, to, to be subject to this very simple model that I've worked out for sex behavior. Um, uh, they're likely to have uh, equations that are of a different sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would make the analogy of the difference between arithmetic and calculus, or perhaps the difference between um, arithmetic and uh, um, 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 fractal geometry, mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, nonlinear mm-hmm. equations. And they're both mathematics, uh, but understanding arithmetic mm-hmm. may be necessary for understanding more complicated forms mm-hmm. of mathematics, but not sufficient. Right. But, and, but aren't you a little bit, let's say, holding back too much here? Because in some sense... If we would, would just pursue this line of reasoning, you, if you place, let's say, the hypothalamus always at the center of this, or, or, or these these uh, neurons, uh, these, these gigantic neurons in the mm-hmm. brainstem, you could say this this is an invariant substrate of mm-hmm. any motivated behavior. These guys always have to be involved, and if if, if they're doing arithmetic, there's always arithmetic playing, playing will, a role here. And they will, right? I agree with you, they absolutely will be involved, but it's going to be a lot more complicated than that. And so as we strive forward, I think on the one hand, the reason I'm being so shy about it is I don't want to be presumptuous and say, mm-hmm. oh, what we discovered is going to be the bow plan for pretty much everything there is. Well, that would just be silly of me to say that. On the other hand, as scientists, we have to be optimists and we have to be proactive. Mm-hmm. We have to say, yes, there is a reality out there. There are sequences of behavior that we want to explain, and we have the mm-hmm. faith that they are explainable. Right. And so you have robots downstairs, and you already know how to, how to regulate some of their behaviors, and you're about to study their, their ability to regulate social behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so even though you don't know all the formula yet for, of, by which the social behaviors will be regulated, you have the faith that sooner or later you're going to be able to figure it out. Am I well, right? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, at least in my case, the robots will have to do something. Right? Yes. So it's, it's an easy test. But now, in, in case of, of the rat, let's say, how many of these behavioral subsystems do you think um, are are in, in implemented in these circuits, and would this map onto these these clusters of gigantic cells? It's easier to state an inequality than mm-hmm. it is to guess at an exact number. And so, for example, if we were in a guessing game, and you were the great neuroscientist in the sky who knew the exact answer, uh, you could say, "How many of these systems are involved?" And I would say seven. And you would say, wrong, mm-hmm. you do not win the trip to Las Vegas, so you mm-hmm. do not live in the trip to uh, uh, um, uh, Monaco. Uh, but it's easier to say it's greater than. Mm-hmm. And so if I, as a, a person who's a sophisticated and well-educated and well-read neuroscientist at the moment, I would say that there's probably greater than 10. Mm-hmm. Greater than 10. How much greater than 10, I'm not going to say. Right, yeah. okay, very good. <laughs> no, because what, what I, what, so my, my contention would be also... So having taken on to these kinds of concepts of behavior regulation, um, if you now start to generalize this towards more complex behaviors like social interaction, mm-hmm. you very quickly see actually you have to even decompose those those overall behavioral systems in all sorts of subsystems. Yes. And it's very difficult to get away with, let's say, getting to plausible social interaction just relying on on a single kind of arousal based drive. Yes. So I think it will it will it will start to fragment very rapidly. This will be an interesting problem to to address in the future. I, I think so too. Mm-hmm. So it's dynamic in the sense that uh, everything that you're going to be studying that, that I study with animals or and are also interested in human beings mm-hmm. uh, 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 studying autistic children. Uh, it's dynamic in the sense that it's a flow of behavior through time. And on the other hand, it's uh, things working in parallel, uh, uh, one system, a second system, a third system, all working in parallel in order to govern the behavior, maybe sensory systems, motor system, regulatory systems, all working at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so the equations are not going to be simple. Mm -hmm. Uh, The great uh, British physiologist, Sir Charles Sherrington, uh, he not only was maybe the best of the 20th century, but he trained the great Australian physiologist, Sir John Eccles, mm. and both Nobel Prize winners, and then they trained other guys. Um, and Sir Charles Sherrington said that the job of the neuroscientist is to explain the flow of behavior through time. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just the individual reflex, the cat put, taking its uh, paw away from the source of the damaging heat, but it's the, it's the uh, sequence of behaviors, whether we're talking about simple behaviors like avoidance reflexes or complicated behaviors mm-hmm. like social interactions. Right. Yeah. Okay, so, so Don, after this exploration of, let's say, arousal systems and behavior, mm-hmm. um, 
the two two questions to to finish up. So, um, you've you've been around the block quite a while. Oh in yes, this, in this business, right? And, uh, uh, <laughs> over fifty years, right? Yeah. And also now you've produced this this marvelous uh, book, Neuroscience for the Twenty First Century, that I hope will find many readers. I hope in, so too. In your target audience, um, uh, you've you've also taken a very let's say tried to develop this physics of behavior, but mm. using modern neuroscience tools. So, but now if you would have to give us the law, Don's law, the law we should adhere to in trying to understand brain and behavior, what would that law be? And don't uh, be shy about it, okay? The law would be to say, don't say a law. Uh, <laughs> um, and the reason is that even as we strain to accomplish the explanation of behavioral regulation in the simplest possible way, and again, we shared the idea that Einstein said every theory should be as simple as possible, mm -hmm. but not simpler, uh, uh, that the temptation to do the shortcut uh, is something that we should avoid. And so um, I, I would never say that any substantial fraction um, of human behavior is going to be encompassed by a very simple st lawful statement. Mm -hmm. It's going to be encompassed by large numbers of complex lawful statements, right. which I have the faith that neuroscientists will indeed uh, explain over a period of time. But on this particular Friday afternoon, mm -hmm. uh, it would not only be false to try to state the law, but it would be discouraging mm -hmm. because we hope that many people listening to this podcast will be people who are about to become neuroscientists, who are thinking about becoming neuroscientists. And if they think that it's already done, mm -hmm. uh, that's what I thought about physics when I was, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, therefore I went into the right. neuro neurobiology. We want uh, people who hear this podcast to get some sense that neuroscience is alive and kicking mm -hmm. and that we're, we're now um, in, in we're, we're about to enter the golden age of neuroscience. And so if I had a law, it would be to say, that we are entering the golden age of neuroscience. And why do I say that? It's because our science of how behavior is regulated has reached a stage of detail and sophistication such that on the one hand, we can make use of the tools of physics and chemistry and mathematics, uh, as you and I have talked about, uh, to try to bring it to the service of behavioral explanation. Maybe simple behaviors, but we're getting mm -hmm. there step by step by step. Thousands of neuroscientists across the world are getting there mm -hmm. step by step by step. On the other hand, as sophisticated uh, in individuals and scientists, we know that as well as coming from bottom up, that every form of complicated uh, human behavior is also governed by the lawfulness of society, that there are well-described social laws that we're all conforming to as civilized individuals. Let's call that from the, from the collective on mm -hmm. down to the individual. And so uh, I believe that social scientists are getting more sophisticated than ever, and therefore we who are trying to study individual animal behavior, human behavior, robot behavior, uh, can take advantage on the low side of the physical sciences and on the high side of the social sciences. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to be doing that big time. Right. Uh, uh, all 216 countries mm -hmm. and territories. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how do I summarize that law now? What's Don's law? Uh, it's make use of all the tools of the physical sciences, all the tools of the social sciences, mm -hmm. and that will keep you busy for 50 yeah. years. Like be inclusive yeah. and take yeah. the challenge. But when, then, I, when I think of all the places this could be going on, the reason I said 216 is because that's the numbers of countries and territories mm -hmm. that took place in the that took part in the Olympics right. in London in 2012. Mm -hmm. If you look at the uh, UN right now, I think it's 196. Mm -hmm. And out of those 196, about half of them uh, are in miserable economic shape. And so we really want the brilliant people in those countries to, to go to Springer and uh, through perhaps EBRO, International mm -hmm. Brain Research Organization, or perhaps through uh, the Human Frontier Science Program and look for this text called Neuroscience in the 21st Century. Right. Because we've got great scientists from all over the mm -hmm. world. I, I, how many different countries uh, contributed? Oh, I would guess uh, inequality again. Certainly great, greater than 20, 20 countries. <laughs> right, greater exactly. than 20 countries. Uh -huh. And they, they worked their hearts out to mm -hmm. produce great stuff right. uh, for neuroscience students all over the world. Excellent. Now, I'm looking forward to that. So the last question, then, is, um, so five years from now, we're going to go find you there at the yeah. campus of Rockefeller University. Yes, I'll be there. And I'm going to ask you, like, look, listen, Don, five years back you made this prediction. Yeah. And today it's pay-up pay time, you know. <laughs> you're going to lose your wine or you're going to gain yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, what is one prediction you feel most uh, strongly about today? I'd like to know what are the rules by which these giant neurons, nucleus gigantocellularis, neurons in the reticular formation just above the spinal cord, what are the rules by what they operate, by which they operate? And that would the answer is going to come in two parts. One will be what are their internal rules of governance? Is there something special about them? Is there a really a factor X that we haven't conceived yet, or is there a new channel, mm-hmm. or is there a different protein expressed, or is there a different kind of mitochondrion, a fundamentally different kind of mitochondrion to use energy by those neurons? that makes them great. Uh, and I would like to be able to tell you if if there is a factor X, and if so, what is that factor mm-hmm. X? Right. Especially if there's not a factor X, then I'd like to go to the second part of the equation, which is to say, how are they managing their inputs? Uh, as you pointed out, uh, there are many sensory uh, surfaces that have uh, uh, started to receive these signals, uh, somatosensory signals, olfactory signals, you name it, auditory signals, coming onto these dendrites, how exactly does that happen? If I could tell you that, then I would be able to tell you what is the rules of operation of these nerve cells which are at the center of arousal, mm-hmm. which I believe is at the beginning of the execution of every behavioral response. Right. So what's the specific prediction, the specific one? The specific prediction is going to be that there is no factor X. I hate to say okay. this. I really okay. hate to say this. I'm, I'm, this is no fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that there is no factor X. It's more of the same. Okay. More of the same. A bigger cell body, more mitochondria, mm-hmm. more dendrites, and therefore a greater integrative capacity. Right. And that they operate in groups. Mm-hmm. In a fish, they operated one by one. Mm-hmm. But in some way, I want to know how they operate in groups. We're dealing with teamwork here. Exactly. Excellent. Well, Donald Prof, thank you very much for this conversation. This is a great series of podcasts. I hope that uh, people will listen to all 100. (laughs) Very good. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.